Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Canada's disastrous and costly PCR testing requirement, Aaron O'Toole's cracking the whip on Conservative caucus members, and is climate change the new public health crisis? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North, Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. It is great to have you aboard the program here. I was gone last week on a vacation. I'm glad to be back, although I very narrowly wasn't back. And and this actually is a, a personal anecdote, but also one that ties in very well with a timely story I wanted to get into, and that is Canada's punitive, distressing, and costly PCR test requirement for people to enter the country, including Canadians who have been traveling abroad, something that, believe it or not, is legal and want to come back home for reasons that become less and less clear with each passing day. So just the, uh, the the primer on this is that if you leave the country and want to come in, whether you are a Canadian citizen resident or whether you are just someone visiting Canada, you've got to go through what is called a molecular test. And for the most part, this is a PCR test, although there are a couple of others that are eligible. Rapid tests will not suffice. So if you do a rapid test, you can't come to Canada. And no matter where you are in the world, you've got to procure one of these and get results back within 72 hours or you will not be allowed to board a flight to Canada. So my wife and I last week were in Vienna, Austria, and we had purchased these testing kits that were actually just launched a couple of weeks ago by Air Canada and Switch Health. And they're called RT lamp tests. The government takes them. You do them yourself, but you have to be on a video call with some Switch Health employee to make sure that you've shoved the swab up your nose sufficiently and haven't been monkeying around with the QR code or anything like that. Anyway, so we bought a couple of these tests, $150 each, brought them overseas with us so that we wouldn't have to deal with the hassle of trying to hunt down a PCR test in some foreign land and waste half a day of vacation doing it and, and so on and so forth. So we do this. We're trying to do the right thing, trying to make things easy, easier for ourselves. Did not work out that way at all. So we're in our hotel room. We're on the Skype call with the nurse. We're doing this. I shoved the swab up and you have to stick it in this vial, stir it around, and then you stick the vial in this machine and put the batteries in and the machine will do its business for I think like 25 30 minutes or so and then it tell you positive or negative so I'm doing this purely as a formality and 20 minutes later or so the machine lights up the test is done positive so according to the switch health RT lamp I have COVID or had, as at least uh, last week when I was doing this. And my wife, uh, hers is still processing, then five minutes later, ten minutes later, whatever it is, hers lights up negative. So the two of us who have been, you know, like sitting beside each other doing the test, we've been inseparable for the trip. We were together every day, all day for the days leading up to the trip. Somehow I've got COVID and she does not, according to the test. Now, felt completely fine. I wasn't worried about actually having COVID. 
I was worried about testing positive because, well, as much as I enjoyed Vienna and would have liked staying there perhaps for a longer period of time at some point, I didn't want to do it in like some Austrian COVID uh, gulag detention center. I wanted to come home on my terms or stay there on my terms, not to end up in, in Austrian quarantine. So that was my concern with this. So I'm like, this is this is nonsense. This is awful. So thankfully, Austria is a place that has a lot of access to COVID testing. It's just something the country has made a point of trying to have available for people. My wife was able to pick up a few rapid tests from a pharmacy across the street. I did one rapid test. It was negative. Slept on it. Did another one in the morning. It was negative. At this point, I'm I'm fairly optimistic that I had gotten a false positive on the first test. So I went to procure a a lab test, like a a proper test. I did that, got the other guy to put the swab up my nose and in the back of my throat. And uh, that was it, thankfully. And that one came back a couple hours later as negative. So I was able to uh, take that test, get on the plane, come home. And that is where I am now, thankfully, back on Canadian soil. So all of this to say, I'm pretty good at rolling with the punches. I'm pretty good at being uh, spontaneous if I need to be. But I could see a lot of people, a lot of travelers that have tried to do everything right, being in a situation here where they're just downright terrified because they think they're going to be stranded in another country despite not actually being sick. And remember, the reason that these take-home, do-it-yourself tests are desirable is because in some parts of the world you can't access a PCR test or you can't access one that can guarantee you results back within 72 hours. So the idea of doing one yourself is pretty appealing to a lot of people. So I I can imagine just how terrifying this would be for someone, especially if it's the first time they've traveled internationally in in two years, which is probable for a lot of people. This was my first time overseas since I was covering uh, some conference in uh, 2019. So that's where we were. But the fascinating thing about this is that I was not sick. I had, even if I had had COVID, managed to go weeks without giving it to my wife and having no symptoms. And the reality is that I was not posing a threat to anyone, but the government's PCR testing requirement almost stranded me abroad. Now, some of you listening may think, yeah, well, that's actually better for Canada if you're uh, stranded abroad, Andrew. It's not just about me. It's about about everyone. It's about all of you. This week, the United States finally reopened its land border to Canadians, which means if you are a Canadian, especially one of them who lives in the border community like Windsor, Ontario, Sarnia, Abbotsford, BC, and this is just part of your life, just going back and forth across the border, getting cheap groceries in the U.S., going to American restaurants, you can't come back unless you can prove to the government that you've had one of these molecular tests, even if you just go over for an hour. You go over to the U.S., you have lunch at Olive Garden, you come back home, you've got to have a PCR test or you're going to get fined $5,000, which defeats any savings you might pick up by getting all-you-can-eat bread and salad at American Olive Garden. Can you tell I'm in Ontario, which got rid of Olive Garden several years ago? Anyway, Olive Garden's not the point of this. The point is that this is a restriction on mobility. That has nothing to do with science. It has nothing to do with public health. And the government knows this. The government absolutely knows this. And I'll tell you how they know it. Because the whole point of the test is that it has to be done less than 72 hours before your return if you are arriving by land or when you board the flight if you're coming in by air. Less than 72 hours. If you're going to the U.S. and coming back in an afternoon, say, you can use a test that you got in Canada three days before you left. I could get a test at 1 p.m. on a Tuesday, 
go to the U.S. at 9 a.m. on a Friday, come back at noon on a Friday, and show that test that I got in Canada three days prior, and that will admit me into the country. Now, if I do this, even if I magically picked up COVID in the United States on that Friday in the couple of hours there, this test is not detecting it. So the testing has nothing to do with the actual travel risk. The original testing requirement was to make sure that if you were coming from Wuhan and you had been in Wuhan for six weeks, you weren't bringing in some new strain. What are we up to? The, the Kappa Alpha Theta variant or whatever. So that was the point of it. It wasn't meant to be if you're going away for just a couple of days, for a couple of hours, that this test would pick it up magically and be the deal breaker in you getting home. That was never meant to be the point of it. So even if you accept at face value that these tests are effective, that these tests work, they aren't working for the stated purpose. But as my case demonstrates, these tests are not, as numerous people have been warning for two years now, as much of a silver bullet in detection as so many of their proponents like to be. I got a false positive. I think it's highly unlikely it could have been a genuine positive because of how soon after I got the negatives and the subsequent negative and the subsequent negative after that. So it was a false positive. False positives are a genuine risk. Even the instruction manuals that come with these tests show that false positives are a risk. They say they're rare, of course. But this is a very high stakes game for Canadians who want to travel abroad when it is not producing any public health benefit. And in my case, look, these tests that we brought away were $150 each. The test I had to get in Austria to uh, get myself back in, the one that came back negative, was 89 euros, which was actually a fairly inexpensive test in some parts, even in the U.S., some of these tests, the ones that will guarantee you results within a certain time frame, cost $250 American. So you take a family of four over to uh, Bellingham, Washington, or Port Huron, Michigan, to come back, $1,000 US. Most families cannot afford that. So as always, these restrictions that we see governments impose only seem to target one specific demographic. When the land border closed, the rich could ship their cars over and take a helicopter. The rich could always fly into the U.S., fly back. The rich could afford these homes in which they could quarantine. It's the lower-income people that have no recourse against these punitive measures that even today are being punished and prevented from traveling, even though the reopening has happened because they can't afford this testing requirement. And the government's plan with this if it wasn't abundantly clear, is not to prevent the importation of COVID. It's to reduce travel. It's to reduce mobility. They want to make it so costly and so cumbersome to travel that most people can't do it or think it's not worth the hassle and will decide not to. But the government can claim, oh, you have a right to. Sure, you're allowed to. But they've taken it away. It really isn't a legitimate choice in the same way that a vaccine mandate to travel by air is not a legitimate choice because you're being forced to if you want to partake in these certain benefits or what are supposed to be benefits of living in a free society. 
Now, I'm not alone in this, by the way. Most people are saying this testing requirement does not need to exist. Leaders in American border communities have been saying for quite some time, American business owners have been saying for quite some time, they think this testing requirement is very punitive. It does not help public health. And more importantly, it hurts these border communities that have been longing for the reopening that is supposed to be taking place this week. But, but even the public health experts... The public health experts on whom the government says it relies to make determinations about public policy are saying this is absolutely not required. Now, all the federal government is saying is that they'll continue to evaluate the measures and make necessary adjustments as required. That's what a spokesperson for the new health minister, uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, has said to Global News, which is basically the, the answer that they give to anything now so that they don't end up stepping in it like when Patty Haidu was calling border closures racist like three minutes before they closed the border. They don't want to say anything decisively, so it's just, well, we continue to monitor and look and we're exploring and, and all that jazz. But let's look at what the actual public health experts are saying here. Dr. Amesh Adalja, who is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, says, wouldn't it make more sense to have a rapid test done at the border? You can get one in 50 minutes or even faster rather than a 72-hour-old PCR test that's sometimes logistically difficult and expensive to get. Fatima Kakar, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist in Montreal, says, yeah, the PCR is the gold standard, but if we're talking about a population that's overwhelmingly vaccinated, is it okay to take the risk of just using rapid tests? And she says, yeah, it's completely reasonable to ask that question. Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious diseases physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, says the antigen test should be considered. He said if we're trying to prevent people from entering Canada with active COVID, a rapid test is probably even more accurate than a 72-hour-old PCR test because you're catching people that are infectious at the moment that they enter Canada. And the key with that is that if you land and test positive with a rapid test, you have not been at least denied entry to your country. If I had been, let's say I had been stranded in Austria. I know there, Scott Hayward uh, pointed out on Twitter the other day that, you know, there are far worse fates imaginable, which I accept. But nevertheless, if I had been stranded in Austria, what the Canadian government is basically doing is uh, telling Austria that, you know what, they're your problem. We, we don't want to deal with Canadians that might have COVID. They're, they're your problem. And if I couldn't afford to get another test, if I were somewhere where I couldn't have access to another test, I would have been denied the right to enter my own country for no reason whatsoever. And, and this is coming at a time when the vast majority of international travelers are fully vaccinated, which the government says is the target, is the priority. It's coming, well, if you want to board a plane in Canada, you have to be vaccinated. You have to be fully vaccinated if you want to fly somewhere in Canada. So within the next few weeks, the only people traveling will effectively be fully vaccinated individuals, people that have done what the government said was essential to reopening, people who have done their part. They did what the government asked them to do to flatten the curve, to stop the spread, to plank the curve, to uh, get to COVID zero, whatever the platitudes are that are forming our goal, people who have done that. And now the government is saying, well, you know what? You're, you're not that safe after all. You're not actually as safe as we told you you would be if you were vaccinated. So what we're living in right now is a reopening that isn't a reopening at all. 
a reopening that comes with all of these terms and conditions that effectively hamper your ability as a Canadian to partake in what is supposed to be this momentous occasion, the triumphant vanquishing of COVID, the border reopening, international travel restrictions being dropped, and so on. And now you are still forced to pay the price because the Canadian government does not know what it's doing. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Earlier, I spoke about the perils of a false positive COVID test. Well, let's talk about another thing you can test positive for in 2021, climate change. Yes, I don't know what the treatment is. You show up in the ER, the doctor sees you look apparently fine and wonders what's wrong with you, says to the EMT, come on, man, what are you bringing this person into the operating room for? Well, they're suffering doctor from a bad case of climate change. Yeah, I don't know what the remedy is. Do you call for a blood transfusion? Do you call for a couple of cc's of something? Or do you just, you know, put on a nice air conditioner and say that's going to sufficiently bring you down to temperature to uh, get rid of the scourge that is bodily climate change? But this is happening. This is happening. The Times colonist says a British Columbia doctor in the emergency room has diagnosed a patient as suffering from climate change. Yes, Dr. Kyle Merritt had a woman in her 70s come into his emergency room at the Kootenay Lake Hospital and decided to diagnose her with climate change. She has diabetes. She has some heart failure. She lives in a trailer with no air conditioning, and all of her health problems have been worsened. She's struggling to stay hydrated, the doctor says, and now you're trying to figure out what to do, and diagnosing her with climate change is apparently the answer to that. Now, this is just one extreme example, and just like COVID, they don't want you to look at all the underlying conditions. They just want you to look at the category in which they've decided to place the person for whatever political purposes. But this is apparently a thing in the United States States, 70% of Americans are experiencing climate change, anxiety, and depression, according to one survey. So 70%. So that means that more than two out of three people in the United States are dealing with anxiety and depression, not because of uh, all these school assignments they have or because of uh, being bogged down by credit card debt or family stress. No, it's climate change. It's, that's what's happening. Now, I get distressed about the changing climate, too, as we head into the cold weather season. I don't know if that's what's driving the climate change anxiety for all of the people who were surveyed here. But this is what we're being told now. And you can tell that they're kind of laying the groundwork for claiming that global warming, that climate change, is a public health emergency. And I remember a couple of months ago, there was this news story during the election about conservative MP Cheryl Gallant. She said that there are going to be people pushing for a climate change lockdown in the same way as the COVID lockdown. And she was jumped on by the media. Aaron O'Toole had forced her to apologize. But it's kind of what we're seeing now. When they start to use terms like emergency and public health crisis and diagnosing people with climate change, then it all of a sudden is going to justify the same measures that over the last two years governments have said are justified because of bona fide public health concerns such as COVID. And I mean, after all, that is a perfectly logical conclusion. Remember earlier on in the pandemic, all of the uh, global warming alarmists were just so giddy that there were no cars on the road, that COVID was the greatest thing to happen to the fight against climate change. 
And now you look in Glasgow, 30,000 people from around the world have flown on their private jets to the Scottish city to tell us all that we should fly less and forgo eating meat while they gorge on luxury dinners and then, of course, go back to their private jet because they've they've got to get home after all. And it's not like they can fly commercial or even do the Greta Thunberg thing of taking a sailboat. At least she practices what she preaches. No, they're now making this about health. And by making it about health, all of the things that we have done that have surrendered our civil liberties, surrendered our autonomy, all in the name of health, are going to be justified for the next greatest public health emergency, which is that of climate change. And I mean, a lot of these stories you look at and they seem absurd and hilarious. You can laugh and joke about them. Oh my goodness, a doctor diagnosing a woman with climate change. Well, what a novel concept. But be very aware of how these all intersect with each other and form what is a broader fight here that is taking place right now. And when all the world leaders come out of Glasgow in just a couple of days and say, well, listen, we, this is what we've done. We've come up with an agreement. It is going to come at a cost. And they're going to say it's not. They're, they're, we already see this. The World Economic Forum, which is the group that hosts the big uh, Davos summit every now and then, talking about your, uh, your private jets right there, has said that global carbon pricing, so this is what they want. It's not enough for Canada to have a carbon tax, for the UK to have a carbon tax. We need a global price on carbon. They say it can reduce emissions and pay for itself. Now, one thing that I was taught, taught by my parents when I was younger was to never trust anyone who wants you to buy something that will apparently pay for itself. I remember there was a, a great scene in I Love Lucy where I Love Lucy wanted to buy a walk-in freezer that would pay for itself, and Ricky Ricardo said to Lucy, well, great, why don't you just tell it to come on over after it's finished paying for itself? That's kind of my view on the climate change fight here as well. If you're telling us that a carbon tax is going to pay for itself, then why are all of the people that are going to be paying for it saying, we don't want it and we can't afford it? They admit here that there's going to be a hit to GDP, but they say it's just going to be a little nominal wee, less than 1% hit to GDP, but that, that actually the world economy is shrinking by 18% with global temperatures on the rise. But when you start talking about the fact that it's no big deal, that the economy is not actually going to be taking a hit, you have to look at why that is. They're writing off entire sectors and entire industries like shipping, like forestry, like mining, like oil and gas. And they're creating a transfer of wealth, a transfer of wealth from industrious countries to countries like China who don't care, industrious developed countries, I should say, that are all for the virtue signaling and the platitudes. It takes the wealth from them and moves it to places like China that, as we've talked about on the show, do not care. A country that is single-handedly responsible for, what, 27, 28% of global emissions is not concerned about uh, doing the Catherine McKenna thing and riding her bicycle from one photo op to the other and, and going around just as a volunteer because she's so gung-ho at COP26. No, Xi Jinping didn't even show up to COP26. And that pretty much reveals all you need to know about the China approach to these things. They're all for saying that they're partners in climate, but when push comes to shove, we'll put their own country's economies and best interests ahead of these global ambitious targets. Ooh, the global carbon price. Who's going to be paying for it? It's not Chairman Xi. The people paying for it are going to be Canadian families, Canadian business, and the industry on which the Canadian economy relies. 
And when you talk about a global initiative, this is being led by countries like the Maldives and countries like Tuvalu and Tonga and Papua New Guinea. And look, I, I'm all for these countries that are seeing some changes that they need to adapt to. But the reality is Justin Trudeau is not supposed to be representing the Maldives and Tonga and Tuvalu and Vanuatu. He's supposed to be representing Canadians. This was a point uh, the great Mark Stein made about Boris Johnson. He's not the Prime Minister of the Maldives. He's the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. So when you start talking about global initiatives, it's trying to take every country's dynamic, every country's struggle, every country's burden, and, and put it all into one neat little box and wrap it up with a bow and, and make it so that the wealthy have to pay the price for the poorer countries in the world. Which may sound nice, but the idea of wealth transfer needs wealth. And if you're trying to penalize the wealth creators, you're trying to penalize the countries and the industries and the economies that are doing the heavy lifting here, you don't get to do all of these other things. Remember, the agreements they've made in Paris and will make in Glasgow require hundreds of billions of dollars, trillions of dollars over time to be transferred from wealthy countries to poorer countries. They can't do that if you are effectively criminalizing the sectors that allow these countries to make their money. So this idea of a carbon tax that's going to pay for itself, well, a load of good that's going to do to all the people out of work in Canada just so that the carbon tax can pay for itself in Papua New Guinea. We've got to take a quick break when we come back more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. We are back. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. I want to talk for a couple of moments about a little bit of a change up in conservative politics. This morning, Aaron O'Toole announced his shadow cabinet. A couple of unsurprising developments there. Pierre Polyev is back as the finance critic. He was, you may remember, demoted before the election for reasons that were never quite explained. But now that the election's back, the conservatives are allowed to have a backbone. So Pierre Polyev gets to be the finance critic again. You have a couple of other things that are, are pretty unchanged. Some unsurprising developments. Michael Chong back in foreign affairs. New MP Melissa Lanceman is the uh, critic for transport. Curiously, Marilyn Gladue is not in shadow cabinet. Now, uh, Marilyn Gladue, I spoke to her on the show when she was seeking the leadership of the Conservative Party. She's always been a, a well-liked and popular and, and very accomplished member of the Conservative Caucus. She's been in shadow cabinet in the past. She's not there. I have no inside knowledge about why she is not in shadow cabinet. Maybe she was a contender. Maybe she wasn't. But I can't help but wonder if a big part of it is the fact that she's been pushing for MPs in the Conservative Caucus to stand up for civil liberties. She's the founder of the Civil Liberties Caucus, a group of MPs, a list of which we've not seen, who have gotten together to say that members of Parliament need to be standing up for their constituents who are very concerned about vaccine mandates, who are very concerned about these policies that are being pushed by all levels of government that try to segregate society and are very much costing people their jobs and their livelihoods. 
that there have been a few MPs after the election, not uh, the least of which is Marilyn Gladue, also Leslie Lewis, Dean Allison, conservative MPs that have spoken out against, in some cases, the unanimity of the public health narrative that you're not allowed to question. Leslie Lewis has spoken about vaccinating children and whether that's the best approach. Dean Allison has spoken about a diversity in the medical community that's not being reflected in a lot of the public health guidance we're getting from the federal government. None of these should be contentious or controversial points. But the media was, of course, asking Aaron O'Toole about them. And what does he do? He says, oh, yeah, yeah, they're all wrong and they should shut up. Just take a watch. As I've said, there's a big difference between advocating for your constituents who may need reasonable accommodation and creating confusion about public health measures. It's a great example of why members of parliament of all stripes should let the professionals, let the public health officials, let the physicians answer questions about efficacy of vaccines or provincial programs on vaccination. As I just said, it's important for members of parliament to advocate for their, uh, their constituents who may be losing a job or may need reasonable accommodation. We do that all the time on a range of issues. But it's very different to cause confusion with respect to the health and well-being of Canadians. Ms. Gladue's interview did that yesterday, and it's not appropriate at a time we should be answering questions about vaccine hesitancy, not creating new questions. Now, this is, by the way, coming from the same Aaron O'Toole who has previously at a couple of points spoken about the importance of choice in vaccination, saying it is a personal choice for people. But now he's saying his caucus members, who, by the way, he said also previously he supports conscience rights for. uh, Now, well, you know what? They, They don't actually get to speak their minds on this. And now it's not appropriate for them to stand up for civil liberties. It's not appropriate for them to talk about some of the experts who are speaking out whose voices are being silenced. That's all not appropriate. You only get to say what the leader's office says you get to say. That's the way the Conservative Party is ready to kick off this session of Parliament. And if you want to see how dangerous this process can be, just take a look at what's happening to Bert Chen. Now, Bert Chen is the National Council member who spoke out very quick after the election against Aaron O'Toole's leadership and started that petition that we covered here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Well, Bert Chen was suspended from National Council. And just look at what's happening to him now. He could be ordered to turn over emails and phone records. Emails and phone records. Bert Chen has been asked to turn over any records connected to his push to oust O'Toole. But but why? Like, for what reason? Under what authority? Now, his lawyer, Scott Hamilton, has said that this is an unprecedented campaign to thwart dissenting views and oust those party members who disagree with the leadership of the party. His 60-day suspension will come up at some point, I think, in the next month or so. But the reality is there's now a witch hunt underway to unearth anyone who may have been talking to him, who may be sympathetic to him in criticizing Aaron O'Toole's leadership. So this idea of cracking the whip on your caucus members, cracking your whip on your national councillors, effectively this is going to turn into cracking the whip on conservative members as well because a lot of them are going to want to speak out at the upcoming conventions and may well be denied the right to do that. Is this the way you build a winning coalition? And if so, you're winning at what cost? You know, I know I quoted Mark Stein earlier, but I'll quote another one of his go-to lines here. It's a lot easier for the base to get themselves a new leader than for the leader to get themselves a new base. 
And, and that is a fundamental truth that you can't avoid here right now. If Aaron O'Toole decides to go to war against his own party, and people whose opinions and whose reputations carry a lot of weight in that party, he's going to very quickly find himself a leader without an army. We have to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the program today. We'll be back in just a couple of days' time on Remembrance Day with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.